more and more I feel like I'm seeing that I've got my happy place or my preference and where I feel most comfortable in the style of leadership. But And that works for a, a certain number of people, but there are other situations and other people that need something quite different from me. And it's actually the ability to adjust my leadership style for different contexts and different people, I think, is the kind of next big challenge. So to your point, learn who I am as a leader and how what comes naturally. That's something that I can play into, you know, often in the context of my work. But what about in those situations where that style of leadership isn't going to work because of the context of the person? So yeah, I think that for me feels like, you know, the next big challenge for me is starting to really think about how I am as a leader in situations that might not be as comfortable for me or as context as easy as that, that doesn't don't come as easy for me. Kia ora. Welcome to Humans at Work. I'm Jules, your host. Thanks for joining me and our latest guest. And thanks for taking some time in your day to indulge your curiosity about other people and their humanness. If your thirst is unquenched after this, check out humansatwork.org. Now let's begin. Great to see you again, Di, although we did catch up for lunch, uh, as promised, uh, in between. Yeah, we fulfilled our our podcast promise. We did. I do have to give you a little bit of feedback. One of our listeners um, said to me that uh, she was really enjoying listening to the podcast interview with you uh, while she was exercising. She was doing a big walk. And then we started talking about pastries and she then got really annoyed because she was supposed to be exercising and all she could think about was getting back quickly so that she could have a pastry. I guess this is my time to apologize to that listener. <laughs> Look, I wanted to catch up because I want to understand, you know, in the year since we last talked, what's happened? What are you focusing on from a work perspective? What is giving you the most joy in terms of the types of work or the causes for which you're working for so can you just give us a a little rundown on what's giving you most joy from a work context at the moment I think yeah it's been interesting to reflect since it's been a year because in some ways I've probably been doing more of the same but more and more finding out what it is that I both enjoy and feel like I'm at my best at and I've been lucky enough to be going through a kind of um, leadership development program that my work um, that my work has which I think has enabled me quite a bit of time for introspection and thinking about leadership style what I what it is that I most enjoy doing what it is that I put my attention to how that matches what I enjoy and just having more of an opportunity, I suppose, to think about, yeah, what leadership looks like in the context of the work that I'm doing. So, you know, the actual kind of day-to-day content of my work, I think would be much the same, but probably with just a bit more space to think about some of those bigger questions about about my work in that respect. And I'm interested in the the adaptation or the evolution of leadership styles, because for many people, once you're a leader, whether that's a thought leader or a kind of hierarchical leader, you kind of are what you are. Um, And it all becomes about, you know, the team or the outputs from the team that you are responsible for. Um, So I'm interested in your views on the importance of adaptive 
leadership, given how big the changes are in the world, the world of work, what uh, employers and workers want? Yeah, and I've had the benefit of um, sort of, like I said, spending some time thinking about this. And one thing I think I've really started to understand is that I shouldn't have one leadership style. So I'll have my my preference in terms of the way I um, lead. And that sort of plays again to my strengths, weaknesses, who I am as a person. But being able to have multiple leadership styles that you can employ at different points in time, particularly to meet the needs of different people and what it is that they need. And I think more and more I feel like I'm seeing that I've got my happy place or my preference and where I feel most comfortable in the style of leadership. But And that works for a, a certain number of people, but there are other situations and other people that need something quite different from me. And it's actually the ability to adjust my leadership style for different contexts and different people, I think, is the kind of next big challenge. So to your point, learn who I am as a leader and how what comes naturally. That's something that I can play into, you know, often in the context of my work. But what about in those situations where that style of leadership isn't going to work because of the context or the person? So yeah, I think that for me feels like, you know, the next big challenge for me is starting to really think about how I am as a leader in situations that might not be as comfortable for me or as context as easy as that, that doesn't don't come as easy for me. And do you find that translates well into the kind of critical friend sort of role that you take when you're consulting? So I guess if I sort of talk a little bit about my experience of consulting is often you're working with people who are peers, they're leaders as well of their own functions or their own organisations or industries, and they don't necessarily want another leader to lead them, and they don't necessarily want a staff member to direct. Actually, when they are talking to consultants um, with expertise, what they want is a peer who can um, help them through peer leadership. Um, mm. And that I think that for me has been one of the growth areas in terms of my consulting role is that I'm a critical friend. I'm a, somebody who can translate what I know into peer leadership for clients. So I'm interested if you find the same. Yeah, I've never heard that kind of term peer leadership, but I absolutely love that because I think that goes to the heart of good practice when you're in a consulting role. It's being able to bring clarity, have difficult conversations, you know, bring a very thoughtful and somewhat objective perspective to a situation or a problem or a challenge. Um, but working, yeah, a very work in a very different way and show your leadership in a very different way. And at the same time, often, um, at least in my context, having kind of more traditional leadership at the same time of a team who need direction and support and framing and guidance. But yeah, having to kind of move between those different styles, often, in, you know, the same interaction basically yeah I think I was just going to say quite often you find yourself switching really really fast mm -hmm. and that switching can be kind of quite overt or it can also be quite subtle you know in terms of the language you use or the tone of voice or, or what have you but that uh, that's something that quite often we don't give a lot of time and thought into practicing um, oh. because we're in the moment and we do it uh, and it's only when it it's, it doesn't land well 
um, that we sort of take a step back and we think, oh, okay, so how can I switch more effectively in ways that are going to work for for each audience within the same same environment or the same day or the same program or the same you know workshop you know we tend to think all of those things should be automatic and we should be amazing at them without having to think about it and how having to practice yeah yeah and I think that practicing and seeing it as something that you get better at I think one thing I'm really lucky at in my work is getting to observe often others and how they do that so whether it's my peers or people that I'm working with in a project context I think over the last year if I kind of reflect on something that I have had the benefit of it's spending quite a bit of time with a couple of key people who I watch how they've kind of approach that and you know how they communicate an idea or a point in a way that is going to best kind of get the right outcome but also land in the right way and how they'll adapt across those different audiences so yeah I feel like if I actually sort of reflect on it this year I feel like has been a lot of perceiving and watching and observing Mm. which yeah is, is a wonderful way to learn and to see how you kind of contrast that against your own ways of naturally doing things and sometimes those natural ways of doing things are really really effective and really you know actually a a great way to approach something but sometimes those natural ways of doing things are not and so having that kind of ability to watch others and how they approach those situations and then how the difference in the results and how things land I think has been really valuable. One of the things that we talked about in the full podcast last year was boundaries. And we talked about it specifically in relation to the kind of interface at work with people who could be a friend, but are definitely a work colleague and how how you grow over time to uh, understand the importance of those boundaries. I want to divert off that a little bit because one of the things I'm really interested in is the artificial boundaries that are created by organizations so they you know they become a separate entity they create a boundary between them and others mm-hmm. and you know it's a, it's a completely artificial boundary if you think about how often um, organizations share the same customer um, mm-hmm. they share the same processes for government agencies they share the same ministers often and the same funding sources and the same outcomes and so in my sort of quest for what is the next thing that will take the place of traditional business transformations, thinking more around kind of regenerative approaches to, you know, how organizations can continue to add value and have purpose is to think about, are there opportunities for those artificial organizational boundaries to become a little bit more blurred and for kind of cooperation and collaboration to be more of a focus, particularly for, for sort of citizens or customers So, you know, you work in Australia, I primarily work in New Zealand, they seem similar, but they're quite different. And New Zealand has kind of the state, uh, state and national kind of uh, government systems and frameworks. So I just wanted to understand from you whether or not you see any uh, potential or even, you know, some some organisations taking some steps down that road where the focus is more on cooperation and collaboration than it is kind of competition and Mm -hmm. setting up setting ourselves apart from others 
I, I mean, I love it as an idea. I, I don't think I probably feel like I, I see that in, in practice as, as much as perhaps the potential is there to do. And it's quite a, a radical idea because I think we expect that competition and the way in which organisations structure themselves is important to get outcomes and results, right? And when you think about it, maybe that's something that's actually been kind of inherited by governments that is particularly, you know, antithetical to what they're trying to achieve because they are working across the same people and with the same objectives. But I think probably the major issue I would see in 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 that kind of approach is it's almost a mental load kind of thing. So I think one thing that people I see value in um in having those kind of artificial structures in place is the certainty it gives people in terms of what they need to focus on and what they don't. And it's interesting that it's the sort of idea because it's a very systems thinking kind of idea, right? Like we're all trying to achieve the same thing or working with the same people. How do we do that together? And I I'm, would be interested in how different people would re- react to that kind of approach, whether they'd find it difficult to have such ambiguity around, you know, traditional structures that they've come to know and, and um, value so much. But I think there has been a couple of situations in my own industry where you can see probably more collaborative approaches at, you know, between what have been traditionally very kind of firm competitive lines and, you know, I think they probably actually do happen at different levels and different points of time quite a lot. Um, it's just sort of not necessarily an ethos of mm-hmm. the organisation. So, yeah, it's a really hopeful idea. I really love it as an idea. It feels like it's got a lot more potential in a place like New Zealand where that proximity between people and therefore the, you know, transition between people between different roles is just so much more palpable rather than perhaps here where you know, people can feel, I think, less less proximate and therefore less connected. Mm. And I know that you do a lot of work with not non-for-profit organisations. And in my, I used to do a lot of work, I used to work for uh, non-profit organisations way back, way back in the day. I found at the time, and I'm interested in, in your current experience in Australia, that non-profit organisations are more willing to join up for a common customer, a common cause, mm. um, you know, and they have all the complexities of where they get their funding from and how do they show the value of that funding and, and what have you. But the cause will drive behaviour change to blur those organisational boundaries. Um, oh. And, you know, I, I, I guess my question for you is, do you see some of that activity happening in the non-profit organizations that you work with or that you kind of you kind of align with in terms of the where you are in Melbourne you're in Melbourne aren't you just checking yes 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 Yes. oh absolutely I mean in the not-for-profit sector it's collaboration and a sense of working towards a common goal is so core to the how the, the sector works and therefore collaboration just comes so naturally there's a sense of um, and I, I sort of I think your idea is such an interesting one because perhaps as we see for-profit companies kind of becoming more purpose-driven, so purpose being something that is seen to be at the kind of heart of companies with 
um, a really strong kind of connection to the employee value proposition, you know, purpose being really prominent. If that, um, if that is to become more and more, I guess, important, then it would make more sense to collaborate more with others with a similar purpose, right? So um, I think that that natural collaboration you see in the not-for-profit sector is because they are truly purpose-driven organisations. Um, whereas perhaps in corporate world where still purpose is, is important but hasn't become truly the kind of North Star of, of organisations because um, if it was to be, then I think you were, you're right to say that that collaboration would be much more organic and, and, and natural. And I think um, for nonprofit, they always have a struggle with not enough resources, whether that's people or money or actually it's, you know, a voice, um, you know, influence or what have you. Um, so I guess where my thinking is going is that resources are running out, you know, um, the the sort of access to talent, um, yeah. speed of access to talent, the workforce you know, um, we can't keep growing as a population across the world, um, but also, you know, those skill mixes are changing so fast um, mm -hmm. that there will, I think, always be this real struggle to get the right capabilities that you need at the time that you need it. Plus, mm -hmm. you know, uh, there's a whole lot of evidence around the fact that we will run out of resources uh, whether that's money uh, or um, fuel or whatever it is. And so the pressure will start to come to bear on those bigger organisations who up until now have really suffered from an abundance of those, mm. you know. Um, and so that may then drive uh, a re-looking at how do we achieve what we want to achieve for our customers or our shareholders or the public, but with much more limited resources um, mm. that might drive some more of that collaborative approach, whether that's joining up at the same point to deliver similar services or it's actually joining up across the supply chain in much more considered ways um, so that you have a, a much more efficient way of delivering end-to-end -end services and you are one part of that supply chain in a collaborative rather than a competitive kind of profit-driven uh, mode. Um, so yeah. that's one of the reasons why I think organisations should be looking at that is that mm. everybody is struggling to find time, people, resources uh, and, you know, we can't keep scrabbling over the same things. Uh, we have to think about those things differently. Yeah, I, I think it, it's a time, like a, that, that idea, it is an idea for our time, right? And I think... Um, it's exciting to start thinking about, you know, in that lack of abundance or that scarcity, how might that drive better behaviours, better experiences for not only customers but for for workers as well. I think, you know, the one thing that I think um, people in my organisation almost, um, you know, one of the most common things they'll say about why they enjoy working at at my work is the the variety of work that they get and that that is you know one of our most important parts of our value proposition you know that's something that um, many other organizations I'm sure could benefit from being able to provide greater variety greater 
um, yeah, exposure to different ideas and perspectives and um, and and opportunities. So just jumping from that to um, the topic uh, du jour of artificial intelligence, um, you know, there's a lot, uh, there's a lot of rhetoric out there around the risks and opportunities. Um, and there's been quite a few um, sort of articles and think pieces around the challenges for um, industries like consulting with the advent of, of artificial intelligence and those big, you know, open source, large language models, but also all of the ones that are being developed by the Microsofts, the Googles of this world. Um, so I, I wondered if you could reflect a little bit on what you see as the opportunities or challenges um, with AI. Mm, I think the opportunity is definitely to um, focus us more on delivering the high value aspects of what we do, which is, um, you know, to go back to our conversation earlier, I think that peer leadership piece, it's that um, it's exercising, um, exercising judgment and um, deciding what's important and what's not important and, you know, carving a clear path amongst all of the noise and trust. Like I think trust is something that um, is going to become even more and more important. Um, I think when I, um, you know, like everyone have, have played around with with um, ChatGPT and, and other sort of tools that could potentially be used. And the thing that always strikes me is that I don't feel a sense of, trust in the um the quality and the accuracy of what um what I'm what I'm getting out now the irony is is that you know within a very short space of time AI will probably become more accurate um than what my brain could go away and and do in terms of um of scanning for you know the various information that might come up with a similar answer um but will it um be able to still engender trust and trust is such a a relational and human um thing in it and it it's about leveraging on experience not just sort of um you know within a professional context but more broadly a person's experience all of those things that i think um will become just more and more important in the work that we do as consultants. So, um, you know, rather than seeing our role as generating information or intelligence, it will be about thinking how that information or intelligence applies in the context of our client and in a way that um, is done with, I think, the understanding of, what's important to them and the, the the things that are spoken and the things that are unspoken. So all of that nuance, I think, will become part of our value proposition, being able to understand that and respond to that. Um, so, yeah, there's a huge opportunity, I think, for us to do more, to, to, to into the future, be able to see our value. Okay, so I think where we were going there was around finding out what the consistent 
value proposition is going forward when perhaps traditional services um, can can in the future be done from at least at a baseline more efficiently and perhaps even more effectively through um, tools such as AI. And from that, I wanted to ask about decision-making because, um, you know, there is a difference between having all of the information, having all of the data at hand in, in a succinct way and being the one that makes the judgment call and then acts on that judgment call to put something into place, which is, you know, that point of decision making. Um, and my view is that that will become even more critical as a skill going mm -hmm. forward because it will be easier to get the information and all of the data. So there's less of an excuse not to make a decision because oh. Have, you know a, an absence of information and you have to wait or what have you um so I wanted to ask you know you've you've done this work on your own leadership style um over the last little while but how would you describe your decision making style um I think and this would be consistent I think with most people who have worked with me I am highly intuitive decision maker and I think that is often related to thinking about the various ways that information will be received, the consequences of the, that information, the, the bigger picture, I suppose. So my, my decision-making tends to be thinking about what's this going to mean? How is it going to be received? What are the sensitivities, the things that I need to be factoring into this decision, which may or may not be equally weighted and often I think a very human kind of considerations. So I'm very driven by how people will perceive a particular decision and account take account of that in my decision making. So I think, you know, as a decision, I, I'm, I'm lucky enough to to be in a role, I suppose, where I feel like I get to practice decision making a lot. So constantly making small decisions, building that muscle of scanning the information available to you, taking into account those both highly logical and highly illogical considerations that are important in a decision making process and quickly kind of exercising that judgment to decide um, how to go forward so yeah it's it's probably a very based on a lot of perceiving um, of a situation um, rather than the kind of what the information is in front of me you know saying the logical decision might be x whereas I know that I take into account a lot of other factors that mean even if that was the logical decision making a log logical decision actually in this particular context it's why um, and having a really strong intuition for that. And do you think that more and more organisational leaders are taking the future into consideration in the decisions they're making now, uh, in part because that's the sort of strategic thing to do? And, we're, and you know, everybody's been banging on for years and years and years about organisations needing to be strategic, but also because the whole agenda around sustainability um, and regeneration in terms of environmental um, drivers has become so much of a kind of burning platform over the last, you know, two or three years, definitely. 
Um, I think it's sort of screaming now, whereas before it was, you know, shouting. Um, so do you see any evidence of that um, being taken into consideration more uh, with the organisations that you work with? Yeah, absolutely. Um, I think thinking about the future and various trends and what they might mean for a decision at the time it's been made feels like it's become you know, very relevant no matter what the sector industry or context is. And whereas perhaps in the past, I think there was more of a sense of, you know, certain trends or, you know, directions, strategic directions were relevant to certain industries and certain sectors. I feel like now it's more common to see quite consistently organisations thinking about climate change, thinking about social licence, those kinds of considerations are not really siloed anymore into certain industries. They're kind of across the board and, um, yeah, definitely creates more of a future-focused mindset for leaders, I think. And, um, yeah, maybe it's a, a sense that there's um, all of these sort of broader pressures that are um, need to come into consideration in one's decision-making and it's not... Decisions cannot be made just on, you know, the the information in front of you and the facts of the day. There's more of an acceptance of uncertainty and how you have to make decisions in the context of uncertainty and still take things into account, even if you don't have all the information or the future, you know, the impacts of certain things can't be known into the future. Um, yeah, I think it, it, it it's climate change has been a really interesting one for creating maybe a, just a more of an acknowledgement that decision makers need to think through a lens of longer term future. Um, and, you know, that has probably changed uh, the way that a lot of leaders think about a lot of different issues. And one last question, what what is the thing that you are most looking forward to from a work perspective in the next year? Um, well, I think, as you know, it's, um, it's, for me, it's a little bit funny because I'm, um, my partner's having a, a baby in four months. So I'm going to be taking a big chunk of parental leave for this next period. So I think I'm actually really excited about that because I think that will challenge me in a whole lot of ways that I will bring back into my professional practice. I think it will be challenging in the ways that it is for many people in terms of taking long periods out of the workforce and, recalibrating your identity and all of those things so I think um, it's a it's a funny one because it might not seem like it's something that's a work-related thing to look forward to but in some ways I think it will shape me and grow me in my work as much as anything possibly could and I'm, I'm excited about that. I'm excited for you. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you yes it's it's exciting time first time first time parent excited maybe when we talk in a year from now we'll um It'll be, uh, it'll, I'll be, I'll be very different. <laughs> possibly, possibly. I mean, what I would say is that uh, next time we talk, I fully expect to be holding uh, your baby <laughs> while we're doing it because I love baby snuggles. So I can't wait for that. It might oh. be the thing. Not even the pastries could get me to Melbourne <laughs> this year, but maybe the baby will get me to Melbourne <laughs> next year. Oh, the baby would be very, very lucky to to get to meet you. Oh, thank you. Hey, listen, thank you so much for that, Di. That's all right. You're welcome. Lovely to catch up. Thank you so much for listening. 
And thanks as always to the generosity of our delightful guests. The stories of how others have faced up to their challenges can help give all of us courage to keep going with our own. For more great episodes, blogs, learning packages, go to thehumansatwork.org website. Thank you.